This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast, Season 12, Episode 9. It's the 31st of May, 2012. I'm Adam Collins. I'm at the Oval in South London watching it rain. He's Jeff Lemon. He's somewhere outside Vancouver in a field. Hello. Hello. I'm, I'm a long way outside Vancouver. I'm in the uh, rural British Columbian town of Salmon Arm. Uh, salmon do not have arms. This is a scientific <laughs> fact um, and this joke has gone down very well with everybody locally that I've uh, told it to since I arrived here. But yeah, it's just um, taking a, a detour on the way to Sri Lanka and uh, I thought, look, winter in Melbourne sucks. Uh, why not be somewhere where it's coming into summer? And it's a, it's a lovely, it's a bucolic scene, Adam, out here. Mountains, hills, lakes and salmon with big guns. And it took you some time to get there. So the commute was to LA and then LA to Vancouver and Vancouver mm-hmm. a further domestic flight. Like just how rural are you? How far are you away from like a major city by air? Uh, put it this way. The the flight up here was on a 12-seater um, <laughs> aircraft. <laughs> so well. yeah, that, that, should, that should give you some sort of, um, some sort of idea. But there, there are a couple of sizable sort of small cities nearby. Kamloops and Kelowna, that's the local terrain. Uh, but yeah, we're we're about about an hour out of the nearest one of those. Um, many dogs, ATVs, RVs, and you know the full gamut of rural life. Good times. Oh, Canada for the short term, at least mm. your home and native land. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, that'll be the, the dynamic for the next few weeks. You'll be in a field recording yep. and I'll be somewhere at a cricket ground in England with the international mm. summer about to start. Uh, we have an interview on the show today with the world's number one ranked women's bowler, Sophie Eccleston. I caught up with her uh, last week for 20 or so minutes and I mm. thought uh, we should do that for the podcast as well. She was in great form uh, speaking to me from the, I was going to say the women's IPL, but it wasn't the IPL. The, yep. the, the women's not IPL. The fake IPL. Uh, the fake IPL. Uh, so um, uh, that was a, a worthwhile chat. Yeah, as I say, she... Well, she won it again. She's, she's won it twice now. Yep. Yep, she, she did. And she uh, she was in the final four of the fair break a couple of weeks ago. So she enjoyed a couple of weeks out there in Dubai. We spoke about all of that and plenty more. Yep. Uh, the fact that we didn't have any cricket on the weekend. It was the blast taking place in England, but no county cricket. Gave us a bit of latitude. I got to play, Jeff. Uh, which was a novelty. It's the first time I've been able to take the field this season, and I thought mm-hmm. I should because I kind of dropped this in on the story time app last week that I'm I'm turning out at Lords in a couple of weeks in a in a sponsors game, which has been arranged by one of our patrons. I won't say who who's invited me to play in a company team on the main ground at Lords, and I thought right. I don't want to do that without having a hit first. So yep. I got the chance to turn out for the Oval Dream Boys, the Bees, who we played our final word game against last year. It was the ground adjacent to Dulwich Cricket Club where that game was, so just on the other mm-hmm. side of that that big expanse there in uh, in Dulwich. And I uh, opened the batting, smashed a bunch of sixes, had a great time. Happy days. Yeah, well, so you played the old, oh, my shoulder's busted, I can't bowl anymore. I, I need to open the batting and, you know, bat like <laughs> bat like vintage era Mark Cosgrove, basically. Just, just, <laughs> just go for mid-wicket. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit like that. I mean, it's true to say I can't bowl. I mean, I tried to bowl a couple of balls in the nets before the start of play and realised that it was a huge risk of, like, my shoulder falling off. I will bowl at Lords. I commit to that. I will bowl at least an over there, mm-hmm. even if it kills me. Even if it goes for 36, I'll try and bowl leg breaks at Laws. I absolutely will try it on. Yep. Um, it may not go well. I may concede six sixes in and over, but yeah. I'm sort of duty bound to do that, having um, dreamt of playing at Lords my whole life. But 
yeah, hit the ball pretty well, considering I hadn't played in a year. Yeah, so he hit a half century, threw away a ton is probably mm-hmm. the, the, the better way of putting it. It was uh, given out leg before. The ball ended up, um, I, I don't want to throw the umpire under the bus here, uh, young Toby <laughs> from Crickviz, but the ball ended up somewhere down at, um, down at square leg or backwards square leg, so I, I don't know how adjacent it was, but it was given out and I mm-hmm. had to accept the decision mm-hmm. and walked off a happy, happy enough lad for 62. Yeah, well, look, 62 is good. And I don't think, I mean, 62 is not quite threw away 100 territory yet. You know, it's not. Yeah, it's it's not a, a ninety five plus. That's true. Oh, I did say to the umpire, the opposing captain Nick, who is also part of the Dream Boys, but he was captaining the other team. That mm. there was kind of a bit of debate as to whether we should retire at fifty because that wasn't agreed before the game. Uh, even though it was a forty over game, and usually in forty over games you wouldn't retire yeah, at fifty. On. It's a little bit too play on, yeah. Um, and then I was fairly crude. And I said to Nick, "Look, I've never actually made a ton before, so yep. I'd rather not retire. Yeah. <laughs> give me, give me another fifteen minutes because uh-huh. it'll be. I'll either be there yep. or I'll be out. Yep. And, and it was the latter. A couple of balls later. Well, at least you lived through. You know, you kept on trying to hit everything. You didn't. Sort I did. Of veer at Coley your way through from, from no. sixty-two <laughs> to hundred. Yeah, it would have been disingenuous having tried to hit pretty much every ball uh, yeah. that came down my way for a boundary. That if I had to stop there, yep. uh, it wasn't the prettiest hitting ever. Like some of it was like off the end of the bat and there was a um, there was a I think I, I hit one six off the shoulder of the bat that broke the broke the bat it, it, um, <laughs> it's left a, a, a but you know it gives a sense of how hard I was swinging but a couple came out really nicely and uh, yeah let's hope it's a sign of things to come for uh, Lords on the 15th of June I think there are a couple of our um, of our final word flock from Discord who are going to come along to that so you're very welcome anyone who's around and about London that day to come and sit mm. in the stands and watch a game of sponsors cricket it will be fun uh, where are we up to in our broader world the IPL finished on Sunday mm-hmm. we didn't watch it we kind of finished yeah we kind of finished that game at the end and we're like oh should we watch the IPL or should we watch Nottingham Forest get promoted to the Premier League and we chose <laughs> the latter um, it was like probably more in it more for us and you know that that's fine mm. I, I, I gather that Joss Butler made lots of runs and Hardik Pandya's team won the comp and yep. I'm, I'm sure they had a very nice time and well, that's lovely. They broke a long drought, you know, the Gujarat Titans. It's been, it's been an entire <laughs> season uh, since they were invented and then won the IPL for the first time. So those long-suffering Titans fans, the big, <laughs> you know, the big Gujarat contingent um, finally, finally got some joy. Well, they, they had a team, they had a part-time team a couple of years ago, didn't they? It was one of those fill-in teams. Wasn't that a Gujarati team? I'm pretty sure. Yes, no, that was the Gujarat Lions that yeah, Aaron yeah. Finch played for. Yeah, different that. different name, but that was a Gujarat team. The Lions, yeah. a, and actually a Lions team that deserves to be called the Lions because, you know, like Sri Lanka has Lions on their flag. No Lions in Sri Lanka. Bangladesh Tigers on their, on, you know, the Bangladesh Tigers in their team name. Not a lot of Tigers going around in Bangladesh, but there mm. are Lions mm. in Gujarat. There's a national park in Gujarat that has the last remaining population of authentic Asian Lions. There's a few hundred of them in this national right. park um, where they've managed to survive despite uh, a lot of pressure from the outside. There's lots of cattle farming around there and the lions duck out of the forest and eat the cattle and then the farmers want to knock them off and they have to be very well protected. So, But they're still going. They're still, they're still battling on that last vestige of the Gujarati lions. But I don't know how many sort of in-the-wild titans there are knocking around in Gujarat. You always learn something when listening to the podcast, even if you're uh, the one recording it with Jeff down the end of the line. Thanks for letting us know that. I suppose there aren't any lines in Fitzroy or, or not, in, not in Richmond. No. Well, there, um, there are some in Parkville at the Melbourne Zoo. True. But not a, not a native population, though. No. 
I met a Tasmanian devil. Well, I say met. Like, mm. You know, for coffee with them. <laughs> how do um, How do you do, sir? Lovely yeah, to meet yeah. you. <laughs> late drink. <laughs> never had never never had a late drink before. May never again. <laughs> you up? Uh, no, I I uh, I met a uh, I met a I, I, I patted patted. I think I patted yeah. a uh, Tasmanian devil on a Kevin Rudd trip to the. Uh, it was, I was going to say the marginal seat of Bass, either the marginal seat of Bass or Braddon. Can't remember which one. In two thousand and oh gosh, it must have been two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, something like that. Uh, so I have nice. that, uh, th- th- there are still Tasmanian Devils, which the I was going to say the cricket team they're not they're the, they're tigers, the tigers, aren't they? Tassie Tigers, yeah. The thylacines, not a lot of thylacines yeah. knocking about either. Although there are a few sightings, but they usually turn out to be a possum or something. Are they uh, a Tasmanian native animal as well that I'm not familiar with? The Tassie tiger, yeah, yeah. The, the thylacine was a sort of uh, somewhere in between a, 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 a large fox and a small wolf but a, a different it wasn't a canine it was you know they had these big jaws these sort of prehistoric like sticking forward jaws bone breaking jaws they were you know small predators and scavenger animals and they had stripes they had a kind of stripe pattern so they were called tigers because people weren't very inventive ah, um in the right. in the era of rocking up from europe and colonizing okay. everywhere else they're like oh it's got stripes called it a tiger oh happy days governor oh what are we going to call this place new south wales it reminds me so much of wales but yeah all right fine um sure. Surely, yeah, they, well, if the Tasmanian AFL team, if a Tasmanian AFL team does get up, then a Philistine sounds like a the great Philistines, yeah. moniker to me. Yeah. I mean, they'll probably go with something generic, but something that's native to Tasmania yeah. and that isn't devils yep. and isn't tigers and isn't jack jumpers. Oh, jack jumpers. That's a cracking. That's mm. a brilliant name. Mm-hmm. I loved it from the moment it was announced. Probably because it required explanation, as yeah. with Philistine. Yep. It's like the, the Pivotonians. Mm. It was Geelong with the Pivotonians originally, weren't they, before they were the cats? And, and, uh, and it also the, sort of Melbourne worked. were the fuchsias, and we were the... And, and the the Mayblooms. Were the gorillas, and we were the Mayblooms, and, yep. and all the rest. So it would be in keeping with that tradition. Yeah, and, and, and the Jack Jumpers sort of worked because, you know, f- famous Tasmanians, Jack Rewalt, very prone to jumping, you know, jumping Jack, Jack <laughs> Jumpers, it all worked. Okay, okay. Uh, okay, enough about that probably. More about the test match that's starting this week. How's that sound yeah. to you, Jeff? We are going to be back doing daily shows and a shitload of them from this Thursday at Lords. As it happens, I can't do the daily on Thursday because I'm hosting Felix's book launch for the paperback of It's Always Summer Somewhere at a bookshop in Piccadilly Circus. But you will be doing it, Jeff, with Daniel Norcross, who's mm-hmm. part of the radio broadcast with me. So we'll have a, a daily app coming out every day from Lords. Uh, and, I, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about England in recent weeks because, you know, the county season and we're getting a form line of sorts on, on a number of their players. Mm-hmm. But perhaps not so much about the, the, the tourists who this time last year were virtually unbeatable in this form of the game. It's a bit of a different story now, though, isn't it? I mean, they didn't have a particularly good home summer losing that test match to Bangladesh to start the year. They had a, a pretty shit tour game against Sussex where two days were rained out. Mm-hmm. They've just got rolled by the select county 11 or the county select 11, I should say, after making, like, the better part of 400 in the first innings. And, you know, no one went on to make bulk runs, but Matt Henry uh, made 65 not out. We've enjoyed his hitting in, in recent mm-hmm. months. Then they bowl out the counties for 250-odd. Everyone gets a prize. Everyone gets a wicket. Unfortunately, it didn't um, have first-class status, and I'll return to the frustration of that later. But they did bowl all of their squad bowlers in, in that county's 11. But then in the second dig, at one point, they were 19 for six with Jamie Porter from Essex. Mm 
um, having five of those, Jamie Porter, the, one of the more unlucky men in English cricket, not to get a test cap a few years ago when he was dominating the championship. He's probably out of contention now, but that might get him uh, back in the hat again. Uh, but yeah, 19 for six, they were all out for 148. They were kind of saved by 30 odds from Southey, Wagner and Carl Jamison. And then the counties had 264 to win the game and did so inside a day to win by seven wickets where Ben Compton mm-hmm. made 119 to have by the end of May on the final day of May or the penultimate day of May, I should say, 1,036 runs. Oh. But because New Zealand played more than 11 players, oh, it doesn't have first-class no. status. He got World Series cricketed. He got, he got World Series cricketed. And he's up against... A very solid test attack. He's up against Saudi Wagner. World Jamison, test champions. You know, world test champion attack. Peels a ton off them to win a game. And they're like, oh, sorry, champ. Too many people batted when New Zealand were batting, so that doesn't count. <laughs> That's an injustice. Well, it's the other way around. It's not even their team. I mean, the select 11 was an 11. So they've mm. done the right thing. It's the yeah. New yeah, Zealand that's what I'm saying. It's New Zealand. Players. Oh, it's, it's the good I guys. The good guys are world cricket. Oh, not so good now, are they? Well, let's just go through this, shall we? So this point was made by, I think, Phil Walker on the Wisdom podcast. The Sri Lankan Development 11 played a Surrey second 11 here at the Oval. I think it, no, it might have been at Guildford a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. That was a dead set second 11 game. That's got mm-hmm. first class status. Uh-huh. And this doesn't. But there have been first-class games played with more yep. than 11 players. Many of them, when you go all the way back to the Napoleonic era, when you know first-class yep. cricket was deemed to have started. Um, sure. I think that the ECB should have a think about this. Surely they can retrospectively say it was a first-class fixture. I mean, you know, who's it going to hurt? Well, what, what does it matter? Throw, throw it out there as well and say New Zealand played 15 players. So presumably that means their batting was pretty deep and they still got resold yeah. for bugger all both times. And it also means that they played more bowlers than usual. So actually it was harder for Compton to get the run exactly. because he didn't just have to face the four who were picked in the 11. <laughs> they then got to bring a freshie on every time someone was tired and have them bowl a fresh new spell. So in fact, it should be more than first class. I mean, they should probably be test runs, to be honest. And they used nine bowlers in that second. Yeah. Like everybody, everybody got a trundle and, and um, yeah, and they still got those runs comfortably. So as I noted at the start, it wasn't a particularly good build-up for mm. the New Zealand team compared to last year when they were just flying when they got over here. 67 not out for Nick Gubbins as well, who's moved counties from Middlesex to Hampshire about this time last year. I'd say he's a smoky for higher honours at some point this year. He's had a really good start to the year down at the Rose Bowl. Anyway, for England, it looks like Johnny Bairstow's going to play. He hasn't hit a red ball since the West Indies. He's been at the IPL, of course. There's that enduring debate over here owing to when the season begins immediately Mm -hmm. after the IPL. Occasionally, you'll see players come straight from playing in that franchise comp straight back into the test team and Bairstow's going to do that mm-hmm. as Butler did when he was recalled to test cricket uh, all the way back in 2018. So it's not without precedent but mm-hmm. for some it's jarred a bit because you know there have been seven weekends of county cricket and Bairstow's been off doing his thing against the white ball and now they're expecting him to shift gears straight back into test cricket. It hasn't worked too well in the past. I remember Bairstow made a pair uh, in that test match against Ireland mm-hmm. the week after the the Men's Pesto. World Cup in 2019. So, you know, it, it's it's not without its risks, but I suppose they're working on the basis that he made two really impressive centuries through the winter when, when no one else could hit a run. Mm. There's a cat in the yard here and it's just digging a hole. It's digging itself a hole. I've never seen a cat dig a hole before. It's like Dale from the castle. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't hole. dig a hole. 
what are you going to do tomorrow? Going to dig another hole? Yep. Oh, chilling with water. So, so it, it is a tricky one, and I note that so Brandon McCullum was doing some media appearances as England coach, and he was uh, t- he was floating everything. He was saying everything's open, everything's on the table. Moeen Ali might come out of retirement. Adil Rashid might come out of retirement. They might yeah. they might chat to Liam Livingston about playing Test cricket, um, even though he's got a pretty parlous Red Bull record. They might look at getting Joss Butler back. He he wasn't saying they will do any of these things, but he was saying I'd like to have a conversation to everybody and work out where they're at and. I think that probably makes sense. Like, in some ways, it's looking backwards. You know, it's like let's go back to the things that didn't work previously. But I can also see how a new guy might say, "Well, maybe I'll be the the one to change things up and can can freshen the approach and uh, get the best out of these players who are you know in there. They're still in the first half of their thirties um, or that that yeah. that bracket of returning players. And then there's Livingston, who's the up and comer. I mean, Shane Warne was a big get Liam Livingston into Test cricket. He just hit one over the pavilion in a T20 game. Oh, in a 100 game, get him into test cricket, you know, he'll do the same thing, which was a, a creative sort of way of thinking, but uh, I suppose you might as well look at all the options at your disposal. Yeah, and I think the most interesting of that lot is Moen Ali. I mean, remember, he's formally retired from test cricket, yeah. and now he's out of retirement again. Sure. So, I mean, the McCullum appointment, you know, it was interesting hearing him talk. What was that line he said about, I might be useless at this, I might be a failure? You know, whatever it was, he said some form of words around the idea that, oh, this might be a basket case, and I may not do so well. Like, he seems like he's willing to be quite open about the way he's seeing it, as he was when he was a player. You know, we went through it on Storytime last week, didn't we, Jeff, about remembering the team that he inherited back at uh, Cape Town, you know, the first test that he oversaw as captain, all out 47, um, to think where they were at the start of 2013 compared to where they were when he finished up as captain not even four years later, I suppose. It would have mm-hmm. been three years later. They were a completely different cricket team. So, And that's what they want from McCullum to try and help draw a line under what's been, especially in the last 12 months, 18 months, yep. new captain with him. So, yeah, there's plenty of interest around this test, Jeff, over here. Like, There's a lot of speculation around who will make up the final 11 with the bowlers. There was... A tweet from George DeBell last night that aggravated a lot of people. He, he pretty much said that he's hearing it's between Craig Overton and Stuart Broad for the last spot with Matty Potts, therefore, straight into the 11. How can it possibly be that, that Overton would play ahead of Broad, kind of on the basis of his batting? Yeah, uh, and, the old and, Chris and I, Wokes I, theory I, again. Yeah, yeah, well, well, uh, more acutely, back in the day, remember it was the poor old Jackson Bird uh, missing yes. out on that test match because he wouldn't be as good at number 11 as, um, <laughs> who was it? Was, who was the... Uh, uh, Joe Menny? Joe Menny. Joe yeah. Menny. How many dudes in a row like this? this? <laughs> Not many, Joe Menny. How many dudes in a row like this? Not many, Joe Menny. How many dudes in a row Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't know anybody. The early days of the final word right there. If you've been there from the start, you know what we're talking about. So, yeah, Matty Potts, big bustling Matty mm. Potts. Doesn't fuck around, Matty Potts. He, okay. He's, um, by all reports, DFA. he's uh, got that kind of personality. So mm. he will be feisty okay. if he gets a cap uh, this week. Uh, and they might need him for a while. Ollie Robinson, you know, missed that county game last week with a bad back. The how many of them have got shaggers at the moment? Mm. Every other England bowler mm-hmm. uh, out with a back complaint, yeah. and he's got COVID. Yeah, so he can't do a fitness test. This is the funny bit uh, out of the situation. It's not funny that he's got COVID, but that he's he's due for a fitness test after all of this rigmarole about his fitness, and then he can't actually get someone to come close enough to him to give him one because he's in isolation. <laughs> I mean, it's a uh, it's a parade of disasters, and and I think. I think England's management have to be answerable to this because there was always, with the back injuries, there was always a risk with them playing those extensive limbo games for their warm-up. 
you know, every day before play, they're out there limboing, they're out there getting under the bar, playing some salsa music, putting garlands of flowers around their neck and having a couple of margaritas and doing the limbo. And I always said, I always thought it was risky, you know, like you're going to, somebody could get hurt here. They went away from warm-up football, they went to warm-up limbo and it's come back to bite them. (laughs) And back to warm-up football under the Stokes regime, I bet you... When we see England turn out yeah. for their warm-up on Thursday, nothing more certain than Ben Stokes bringing back football is that. Yeah. He'll just say, fuck this, we're playing football. I don't care what anyone says. There's this um, rhythm. bombs there. under the Stokes one, regime. Yeah, one, one, one coach says no, the next coach says do what you want, and it yep. continues apace. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a lot, yeah, as I say. So there's the Stokes story, there's the McCullum story. There's also the Joe Root story. Will Mack had an um, interview with, well, a piece, sorry, with, mm-hmm. with Joe Root in the standard overnight, or yesterday, I should say. Yeah, we kind of don't think about that, that it's, it's, you know, being the former captain at a relatively young age, mm-hmm. Roots 31, usually, typically, you're the former captain at sort of like 34, 35, mm-hmm. but Root got the captaincy so early, yep. and it's not as though he did it for a year and, and packed it in like Peterson or something like that. This is a guy who was a, who captained England to more test matches than anyone else, I think I'm right yep, in saying, right. more wins, yep. more losses, more games, more wins, more losses, more draws, more, it was all of them, it was all of the more, above, yeah, large he, enough he sample size, then you'll top every a category. massive sample size, yeah. that's right, so, you know, I think that the prevailing point there is that... Ben Stokes was fiercely loyal to Joe Root. They've been friends since they were kids, uh, and he's expecting that in return, and he'll get it, I'm sure, because Root's a good man. Uh, And that'll be, you know, a pretty good asset for for Stokes in having Root next to him. It won't be quite like it was when... uh, when, Well, (laughs) well, I suppose we'll never know because it's not the sort of thing that that people talk about until years later, but when Root took over, there were certainly murmurs that it was frustrating that there was this much older group of players who were all best mates. Mm -hmm. And that was an extra layer of complexity as a 26-year-old taking over the captaincy. bit different here where it's two guys well into their 30s and, you know, he's got, you know, the opportunity to have Broad and Anderson back in the team, assuming Broad plays. Anderson definitely will. So, yeah, there's a fair bit there. Uh, mm. And, look, in New Zealand going poorly, we were joking the other week that England might lose all seven test matches this summer. And, look, they might. They might. Mm. But they've got, they're getting New Zealand at a good time, put it that way. I just think New Zealand are the kind of team who will show up and play well when required they've just they've had that ability I mean they play less test cricket than just about anybody Um, they play very little you know they have this curtailed sort of home test season because of the costs involved they don't tour a lot and they still won the world test championship you know they've still been a team that is able to show up when required switch formats when required and they do that better than just about anybody else over the last few years so I I don't think that you know a bodgy 15 aside non-first class sort of county teams yeah. warm up is actually going to have much bearing once they get on a you know what should be a reasonable batting deck and, and start things off yeah you're probably right so we're going to have daily shows again which will come out jeff remind me australia time that will be about five in the morning yeah, when they that. hit the podcast feed and for in the uk it'll you know maybe an hour after stumps they'll mm-hmm. be filmed on youtube provided the ecb let us uh stand pitch side as I normally do after play you'll have the nice backdrop of the Lord's Pavilion uh, if you aren't already a subscriber to our YouTube channel you know where to find us uh, Jeff before we move to Australian cricket I just got a text from my partner Rach which reads uh, a bunch of crying emojis it's a screenshot here from the nursery app which says hello Winnie was really enjoying her play and refused to sleep I tried to put her to bed and pat her on the bum but no luck early night so Winnie has not had a nap at okay. nursery today we are absolutely in all sorts and I'm not there because I'm commentating a blast game tonight so poor Rach is going to have to deal with a two year old who's uh, not slept a wink during the day good luck with that uh, um, Winnie uh, 
Winnie, Winnie, Winnie. Let's go to Australia. Uh, let's go to where neither of us are. We both speak mm, with yes. those accents. Before the serious stuff, before we get into uh, the important bits of the week, how about Justin Langer speaking at uh, the, the West Australia... Uh, sorry, the, it's called the Chamber of Commerce and Industry West Australia, not the West Australian Chamber of, Com- Chamber of Commerce, Commerce and Industry. Industry. That's very important. I used to always say... Yeah, what I used to always say when, when in politics that it should be called uh, the West Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry with the same naming convention as it is in other states, as it would therefore be known as wacky, and some of the shit you would hear out of that was wacky, <laughs> believe it, um, back in mining tax days. Um, <laughs> but but, uh, but Langer, yes, fronted the wacky uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and teed off. And, um, well, like, exactly what you would expect. Like, yeah. tragically entirely in keeping with the cliche of Justin Langer. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I get that he's angry. I get that he's pissed. But if that doesn't reinforce every point the playing group are making around why he wasn't the right fit for that group going mm-hmm. forward, I don't know what is. If there was anyone left who is still shitty about them moving to a, pl- a bloke like Andrew McDonald to partner with Pat Cummins, then I think take a look at those grabs. It's not this one grab either. There, There is like a whole passage. He's just fuming. And it, yeah, it's not a great look for him, I think, when he's probably going to be back in the job market pretty soon. The uh, the man they call JL, Justin Langer. Yeah, he, I suppose he was talking to a home crowd. He was talking to a Western Australian parochial crowd who probably expected him to be pissed off about it and expected to be aggrieved on his yeah. behalf that he'd been moved on. I wonder why it wasn't sort of Chatham House rules. You know, if you're going to give a speech like that, why was it reported? You know, why was it able to be reported? Was there not some sort of agreement beforehand that, that things wouldn't leave the room uh, because it does seem like something that was affected by the room that it was in rather than, you know, if yeah. if, if you or I had popped a microphone under his nose as he came out of the milk bar or something, he probably wouldn't have had the same response. That, that's a really good point. Sometimes the, the forum can influence the tone. I, I reckon you're spot on there. But even so, like he's a pretty experienced fella, Justin Langer. He's had microphones underneath his nose for 35 years probably and he's been mad about it he's been mad about it the whole time that was the thing like the whole time he was in the gig he was annoyed at the media coverage so there wasn't going to be media coverage and so uh, look it 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 seems it does seem a little puzzling I suppose that that he thought it was worth hopping into that and sort of airing his grievances with CA and and all of the rest of it instead of just saying oh well that's the way it went Uh, I did think it was interesting though he, he backed up the sort of hunch that, that I talked about on the show a few times when he was being linked with the England job that you know, I didn't think he would want the England job. Why would he want to go and coach England? He's such a, mm, a, mm. a sort of, he, he's, a, he's a parochialist in terms of even in working in cricket and that's what he said in, the, in that speech was that he never considered, he, he said he wasn't approached, I don't know if, if he was or not, but that he, he never thought about doing it because he didn't want to go and coach England and fair enough. Yeah, uh, I mean if he wasn't approached that would be a good line for him to run. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like if oh yeah, if he was approached and he was yeah, yeah. If he if he was approached and they said to him, Justin, you are our man, and we are going to pay you a shed load of money mm. to live in St John's Wood in a very nice house and to mm. you know coach the England cricket team, I, yeah, I doubt he would he would have been quite so dismissive. I mean, who knows whether he was spoken to? But yeah, that's the sort of line I would run if I wasn't approached. Sure. Anyway, yeah. anyway, let's look forward rather than looking too far back because we've done the Justin Langer thing to death, specifically to the uh, summer that will be uh, later this year. Well, and not even just the summer, Jeff. Welcome back, winter cricket. I know it's yeah. the very end of the winter, but when was the last time we had a, a top-end international for the men's team? I think the yeah. women... Oh, no, the women didn't play internationals. They had games in September 2020 during the pandemic year, which were mm-hmm. kind of like in that in-between bit. But 
yeah, the men are playing Zimbabwe at the end of August to meet their one-day World mm-hmm. Cup Super League commitments. And I, for one, am staggered. Uh, in a good way. I, I never thought they would play this series because this was one of those that they kind of sort of said COVID's fault and whenever mm-hmm. we've had one of those, um, they've said it'll be rescheduled and of course no one reschedules these things, but this will be and so it is. They'll, they'll be playing Zimbabwe for three one-day internationals in the top end in uh, Happy birthday. the end of August and, and the start of September. Sorry, it's, it's Alwyn's birthday. She's off to uh, off to preschool. Um, but, you oh, know, lovely. Happy, happy. You're turning five. That's amazing. That is a big number. All right, go and enjoy it. Um, You get to go to school as a birthday present. Yes. Yeah, that's why I got cupcakes. Ah, that's why she's got cupcakes. She's got a tray of cupcakes to take to school to have her birthday at at school. Do you remember your fifth birthday? Anything about it? Um, Not a lot. I can't say a great deal. I think I got a book about Batman, and I think I was pretty pumped about that. Um, but but that might have been sixth. It's 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 hard to yeah, separate them. Yeah, they point. do blend in. I'm pretty sure five was the birthday where my grandmother, my Welsh grandmother, knitted me a Hawthorne jumper with a number nine in the back for Dipper. She oh, actually knitted the number nine wow. into it. Oh, grandma! That's... I, I wish I still had it. Like oh. If I could, maybe my mum and dad have it somewhere, and I yeah. can give it to Winnie one day. But it's the perfect you know present when you're a five year old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean. If you could, if you could uh, quantum leap it, if you could time travel, that's the first thing you'd be going back to save. <laughs> would be the Dipper jumper. Um, yeah, the, the it, what I did find amusing was the press release that said Australia's summer of cricket, and then it was like August twenty two. We're playing. I'm like, oh, that's a very liberal interpretation of the summer, which is literally still in the winter. Uh, but it, look, it's good that it's happening. They're playing New Zealand in some games in Cairns as well, which are also those games that were rescheduled, Jeff, because they were the first ever games. I think I'm right in saying. Mm-hmm. They were the first one-day Super League games Australia mm-hmm. were scheduled to play in, you know... March well, 2020. Well, the, the pandemic kicking off, wasn't it? Yeah, so the week where they played that one game behind closed doors. And that series was rescheduled twice. Yep. So I'm even perhaps more surprised that that is going to take place in the Zimbabwe mm-hmm. series. But, I mean, this is a good thing. It's a good thing that they are keeping their bilateral commitments when expectations were so low. Yeah, maybe they owe some games to the broadcasters as well, some white ball games, so that might be yep. part of it, is, is making up those, even though they'll still be in footy season and and, and so on. Who wouldn't dip in to, to watch a little bit of um, Zimbabwe playing back in Australia? So not, not playing test cricket, which they would have liked, and, and which we would like to see um, Zimbabwe play a test match in Australia again, um, having not done so for nigh on 20 years, um, and, and Australia go back to Zimbabwe at some point. But. Well, they did pitch up, didn't they? There was reports in mm. the press. I think Tristan Lavalette had this story a couple of months ago that Zimbabwe were, were trying to get a test yes. match played. They lobbied for uh, it. went out here, but, but that was, well, let's be honest, that was never going to happen. They weren't, weren't going to allow that. And that comes back to that broadcasting point you made a moment ago in, in 20... Let's say it was 2018, I think, when the most recent Bangladesh series hit the fence. That was on the basis mm-hmm. that um, the broadcasters didn't fancy having to do entire test matches in the top end during the footy season. So I suppose they're happy enough doing some white ball internationals. But yeah, let's hope it's a, a sign of what might be possible in the future with scheduling. Like the, the schedule is cooked. We all know that. Mm-hmm. The only way to make it less cumbersome is to play in more months of the year. And the beauty of Australia is you can. You, so you can. Yeah, I hope this is, the, this is the start of something, not just sort of a one-off. Well, that said, they've only got two tests against the West Indies, which they're sort of selling on the basis that 
the schedule's too crowded, but also it's because they don't want yeah. to play many test matches against West Indies after the uh, the last few visits were not competitive. And the Australian women's team, they're playing bugger all. They're playing, I think, what, three T20s and three one-dayers? So thereabouts. They're not starting a home series until January. And, you know, they've just become world champions in the 50-over format, having also been world champions the last couple of times in the 20-over format. And it's like, oh, well... Ah, oh, you know, they're girls, they can, they can knock about and play a few games. And the rationale was, oh, we want to give some of the players some time to rest ahead of the next T20 World Cup. But, I mean, there are more than 11 players in Australia in, in women's cricket who could represent Australia at the moment. If you were worried about uh, giving players some time off, you could rest a couple of players strategically here or there. But it seems a, an insincere explanation for not bothering to put many games on. Yeah, and I think the other point, which is the scheduling issue, is that they're off to India for a full series in, in December. So because they, the, the women's big bash runs all the way up until they depart, there actually isn't time to play mm. any bilateral cricket, as I understand it. But the ACA put out a pretty strongly worded statement from Top Greenberg about this very point that you raised, that, you know, why aren't they leveraging off the success of this team and, yeah. and playing more in, in the middle of the summer and, and waiting until the middle of January when I think something like 23 days of white ball cricket for the men had been played by that stage or, or some dreadful stat like that by the time that the women's white ball teams uh, take the field in in January against Pakistan for I think it's three T20s and five one days or vice versa mm. then they go off to the, the T20 World Cup in South Africa which is in February which is still kind of in the home summer uh, and the under 19s women's World Cup which is a a 50-over tournament for mm-hmm. the first time is in mid-January. So, it, I mean, it kind of comes back to a conversation we were having a few weeks ago, Jeff, around women's scheduling and how that requires as much attention as the men's game now, which is a good thing. I mean, you, you could call this growing pains, I suppose, that mm. we want more, we're, we're calling out for more at a time when maybe there isn't quite the space for as much as there might have been historically. So, yeah, it's a, it's a frustration, but a frustration for maybe the right reasons. But it does provide, yeah, pause for, I guess, future seasons about how they'll set this up. Oh, and Jeff, before we move off scheduling, uh, I'll note that uh, that Ireland don't have a test match this year at Hobart against Australia. Remember mm, that story from about a year ago when, when Earl Eddings was trying to hold on and promising the world to, to cricket Tasmania. Well, Tasmania have sod all cricket um, this mm. year, which is a real shame. After I thought they did a really good job hosting the Ashes Test back in January in really tough circumstances. I thought, I mean, I know it's unrealistic to expect they would get another Test this year when the Windies were only ever going to play two. But yes, I I, I I did see a tweet from our friend Thomas Miles about this saying, uh, "Oh yeah, remember when Ireland were meant to come out this summer? Never going to happen." And, and the, I mean, and even the Afghanistan question that's not been resolved either, has it? Really, not suitably. So there is, I, I hope, scope to play both of those countries in Hobart, if that's where they're going to be in years to come. But it won't be this summer. Nor has it been resolved by the ICC in terms of uh, having full members have a requirement that they field women's teams, which Afghanistan are obviously not going to do, but they're still in the ICC tournaments and, and all the rest of it. That vex question goes on. More ICC manoeuvrings around the women's championship as well. So they've expanded ODI status. They've got five extra associate members getting ODI status uh, as of now, basically. The women's championship expands to add Ireland and Bangladesh uh, to make it 10 teams but there's there's a fair bit of fine print to this isn't there yeah so i mean you look at it on on face value and you see that netherlands papua new guinea scotland thailand and usa get odi status with immediate effects you see that ireland and bangladesh are part of the the one day women's world cup 
formal cycle, so the 2022 to 2025 Women's Championship, which has been really effective over the last two World Cup cycles in giving a lot more cricket to say Pakistan they're the best example of this where they play very little bilateral cricket they've had to play a lot of bilateral cricket and you know the fact that that's expanding is obviously a good thing but there's more to it than meets the eye our friends from the associate mafia were all over this straight away so Andrew Nixon who if you don't follow Andrew you should in terms of all associate politics he's been on the podcast before with Jeff last year talking about the disgraceful treatment of Thailand at the women's world cup qualifier that wasn't when Omicron broke out. So Andrew wanted to make the points, and he has made them clearly, that what this does, in effect, is engineer it so that there isn't going to be a pathway beyond the teams who are already there. So there's no more pathway events that mean the teams that qualify for the qualifier are only doing it based on rankings, which are easy to be manipulated. I mean, you know, we've seen already what a problem the idea of these rankings can be with Mm. such small sample sizes, and you can game it. You can. Why wouldn't you? If you're trying to get to the next stage, why wouldn't you just game it that you rack up your rankings points and 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 play the game that way? And then avoid playing teams if you've already got the points and, and playing might cost you points and you might end up dropping down. Precisely that. And, and related to this, there's no sign of the ICC arranging any new matches for these teams that have been given one-day status. They'll be left to sort of look after it themselves. There won't be that that formal structure that we've had in the past and what we have for men's cricket, more to the point. And that's already harder for women when there are so few full-time opportunities, right? So if you've got to get 11 players and was talking about this uh, recently at Fairbreak, I can't remember with who it was, but there was a, a discussion around bilateral women's series and like these are extraordinarily difficult series to get off the ground because you've got to say to, you know, 15 players from each squad, you've got to be in a country for say two or three weeks and that means all of them need to take time off from work or school or mm-hmm. university or whatever it is. Like it's nowhere near as straightforward as it is when you're a professional team. So there's that extra hurdle to clear on, on the way through. Now, No more regional qualifiers, meaning that 37 teams could feasibly have qualified for the most recent World Cup. That's now effectively down to just 16 and 17 if you can Afghanistan as the other team. The ghost team. Afghanistan's women have one-day status despite the fact that they, you know, don't really have a team. I mean, yeah, never played. They sort of, they, they were on the... On the pathway to having a team uh, before what happened last year happened, but uh, that that's looking harder now. And yeah, and there are implications for the, uh, the the sort of the future of the men's 50 over pathway as well. Here, the Super League's already been binned last year, and you know we're going to see League Two and the Challenge League binned as well. Like. It does feel like we're moving in, you know, there is definitely positives about what the ICC announced last week. It's just that when you scratch beneath the surface, it isn't as clear cut Mm. as it might seem. So, yeah, hopefully there's a way to to listen to these concerns because they're not unreasonable at all. And and it's not just about getting, say, 30 players to take time off. It's also about a a board, you know, a home board that doesn't have very much money or, or funding being able to find a ground and put the thing on and then uh, then it's you know accommodation and transport for sort of 15 players plus support staff it ends up being a very expensive enterprise even just to play say three ODIs in, in the space of five days or something like that so how even, are they even supposed for, to? Yeah and even, sorry to cut you off there but, but even the men where they've got a structure that 
has some contracts, like Cricket Hong Kong's a good example of this, Mark Farmer, who I worked with at Fairbreak, he runs high performance there. I mean, he was going into some detail with me about trying to arrange a men's tour when you've got a handful of professional players, but inconsistent contracting arrangements from country to country. It is a complete nightmare, but it's absolutely required to take the next step. So, yeah, it probably comes back to a conversation we've mm. had before about finding a better way of divvying up the broadcasting money that, that, that swells around and trying to get more of it to places where it can do the most good, but... Mm. I mean that sort of socialised approach probably will never happen, so I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't bang on about it too much. Consternation in New Zealand as well over the past week. Um, Amy Satterthwaite retiring, but retiring under duress, I suppose. Got yeah. had to sit down. Um, got told she wouldn't get a central contract. Leah Tahuhu as well got cut, which was even more surprising to me. The the rationale from New Zealand cricket was that they're moving on and looking to the future and uh, you know they've, they've got to make these hard calls. It is a, a hard call on a, a player who's got such a wonderful record, over 4,500 runs in one day cricket, seven tonnes, made four of those in a row at one point, consecutive innings um, has been one of the greats for New Zealand cricket. I, I understood the rationale that if you've got you've got that big three, that uh, triumvirate of Susie Bates, Sophie Devine, and Amy Satterthwaite, and they're all sort of into their middle and, and later part of their thirties, and things will have to change at some point, and they don't want them all going out at the same time. But it makes less sense when there there isn't currently a new generation of really good New Zealand domestic players pushing for spots in that team. That's not how it's worked. You know, New Zealand cricket have not been able to. Um, to, to grow and nurture a domestic environment that produces players who are up to it. You know, conversely, they have a lot of players who aren't up to it and they have contracted players like Maddie Green, uh, you know, like Hayley Jensen, like Lauren Down, who've all played quite a lot of international cricket and never really done anything much to suggest that, that they're going to crack it. They might, they might in time, but they haven't done so with a lot of opportunities already. And maybe they haven't had the preparation and they've come into the team unready to take on that task and they've got to basically learn how to play international cricket while they're doing it. But none of those are better players than Amy Satterthwaite. New Zealand cricket followers are pretty pissed off about the way this has been done um, and that there wasn't any sort of heads up maybe before the World Cup that this might be your last hurrah. You know, there was no, there was no goodbye for a player of her stature which might have been fitting to do that and, and Leah Tahuhu as I said that's the even more perplexing one um, in that she's been their best bowler for uh, particularly you know the last few years she's been the one that they turn to and it's not like they've got a, a whole crop of great quick bowlers coming through either um, Frankie McKay is another one who lost a contract despite a very good World Cup so yeah there, there are plenty of New Zealanders who aren't happy about it. Yeah, I'm flummoxed by some of this. So, look, Amy Satterthwaite's 35 years of age and she only made one score above 50 in the World Cup. That was 74 against India. But a series of starts, like she's still competing at that level. Since her return from maternity leave, she made that unbeaten 100 against England, uh, made an unbeaten 79 against England as well last year at Bristol. A series of scores above 50. Now, not dominating the way that she was with those four tons on the trot in 16-17, but clearly in the best 11. Now, I get what they're saying. There are 17 contracts, there are, there are limited resources, and they are looking to the future. They're thinking about the next World Cup cycle um, when, you know, that's three years away. Even someone like Susie Bates, she'll be 38 at the next World Cup, but I suppose they're thinking that they want Bates to be there at 38, whereas they don't want to have Bates, Devine, Satterthwaite all there. But Leah Tahuhu, she's 31. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, excuse me for being cynical, but 
I mean, the fact that it's a married couple and mm-hmm. it would be somewhat awkward to have Amy there anyway with their baby Gracie, who's effectively the team mascot. You know, excuse my cynicism, but is this just not the fact that Leah's being binned because they're getting rid of Amy? Yeah. You know, That's, we'll uh, never know for sure. It's one of these ones where I'm speculating, and I'm sure I'll get nasty WhatsApps for speculating about this, but it does it does strike me as odd. I watched Leah Tahuhu bowl in that one-day series against England last year. She's still their best cricketer. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, she's still their best bowler. You can make yep. a claim she's their best cricketer as well, by the way, uh, taken as a whole. But she's, you know, she's their most dynamic bowler. Now, I know they want to create space and build room for the next generation of New Zealand cricketers coming through. Mm. I mean, Hannah Rowe is a good example of that, who presumably will end up leading this attack. But Lee Kasprick's hit the fence as well. Kasprick's mm. got a remarkable record for New Zealand. Well, I say for New Zealand, for Scotland too, and that helps her numbers somewhat. But Kasprick's never got a fair suck of the sore spot all for New Zealand, I don't think. She's always been the first to hit the fence and mm-hmm. now losing her, her contracts. But, yeah, I mean, I also think that the Commonwealth Games, like I, I know this is the contract period, but that actually might be the last hurrah for this New Zealand team. Mm-hmm. That golden generation who've consistently underdelivered at global tournaments. It wasn't quite as spectacular a, a disaster at, at the World Cup recently as I thought for New Zealand. I went back and looked at it with a with, with with clear eyes after it was all said and done. They lost three games by like cumulatively five runs or something. Like they were very they were there and thereabouts. They weren't humiliated. They weren't bossed around the way they were in twenty seventeen in England. This was a this was just like a tournament where everything that could have gone wrong for them did go wrong. I'm not making excuses, but I'm just sort of mm. making the point that it's not as though this team are miles off the pace. Yeah. And again, I'm not I, I get the rationale about thinking three years down the track and they don't have the same robust domestic contract structure. They have to use their 17 central contracts wisely mm-hmm. and they're not going to get rid of Sophie Devine, the captain who's having an extraordinary second half of her career. They're, they've made the call to stick with Bates. But yeah, the Commonwealth Games, they could be in the mixer there. Yeah. And that's only three months away. Short tournament, short tournament, like, you know, margin for error yeah. um, for the bigger teams is high. There's a decent chance you can, you know, you pretty much just need one upset and uh, and, and you could be away. I, I think this is the kind of, this call would have been justified if New Zealand cricket had done their job in developing the next tier of players, but I don't think they have. So I think they've, they're, they're, they've made this decision on an imaginary scenario, which is that they have a, a, a whole raft of next-tier players just waiting to come through, and they don't have that. Look, my cynicism matches yours. I, I wonder how I wonder uh, how much it might be to do with, well, if you have Leah Tahuhu in the team, Amy Satterthwaite's going to come with her as a, a parent, like under the childcare Definitely. policies and so on. They probably yep. have to pay for transport and accommodation and all the rest of it, so it's an extra touring party member, and whether whether that was to do with it as well it does it does seem like a a bit like the broad being lumped in with anderson as the old blokes when they're four or five years difference in age there's that sort of oh well you two you're a job lot you two and so we'll bin off both of you yeah it's It's only nine months ago that she bowled out england on her own Mm. in that game at leicester i mean i I, just i just can't understand it they might be foregoing their opportunity to win a commonwealth games medal Mm. maybe not the gold medal but a medal Maybe maybe it doesn't mean that much to them. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I, I get why people are pissed and I, I, I can't understand a Tahuhu decision. You can make a case for the Satterthwaite one if you really want to, but the Tahuhu call is just odd. And, yeah, I think it, it lends itself to the, the cynicism that we've been voicing here. Jeff, before we move to the second half of our show, we have some housekeeping to tend to. I, I say housekeeping. We bloody love it. Let's do a little bit of... Nerd Pledge! 
That pledge. I can really do that because I'm literally in a field if you're listening to this show. <laughs> um, so th- this is the modern era. There's a good enough Wi-Fi connection out here that I can sit at a, at a camp table in the middle of a field in rural British Columbia and uh, speak to Adam directly in London. Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with people who listen to the show. They fund the show. They support the show by sending in contributions, not in normal denominations of currency, but in specific numbers that have a link to cricket. And we have to work out what that number means. Ollie Chauhan is our nerd pledger this week. The number is $4.66 in AUD. Therefore, Adam, I doubt that it is uh, cap number 466. Mike Selvey, one of your favourites. You love the Selvey career. You love to chat about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the first thing I saw. I, th- I had a look at the caps and, yes, uh, Selv's extraordinary uh, start to his career, which we've never done on story time, I don't think, but it's very story time. I think you've, you've mentioned it. You've, you've sort of skimmed over it because... Might have know, skimmed over it, yeah. It's the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, that's right. First 20 balls, Old Trafford. I've tried to find it on YouTube a number of times. There's highlights of... I think there's highlights of day three and day four of that test, but not day one and day two. Um, but yeah, he picks up Fredericks, Viv and, and Kalacharan in the space of 20 balls to start his career, but then uh, goes wicketless in his next two test matches, including at Delhi, I'm pretty sure, which is the test that we were talking about last week with uh, JK Lever uh, on Test Taboo. I, I got a lovely message uh, in relation to that from Matt Gaynor saying that John Lever's routine after a game was leave the field and have five pints immediately before he would do anything. <laughs> then he would have five more after that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, uh, yeah, it was the, the Vaseline uh, eye strips test match where he, was, he had strips of yep. gauze above his eyebrows to stop the sweat running into his eyes um, <laughs> and the Indian team were unhappy he was Because he was perennially full the night before. Yeah, yeah, probably. He was sweating out 10 pints um, every time he came on to bowl. <laughs> so, look, it's, it's probably not Mike Selby with that blast of a start. I mean, that is something, though. Roy Fredericks, Viv Richards, Elvin Kalacharan. I mean, hello. Hello, cricket. But, yeah, mm. didn't... Didn't have too much after that. Yeah, I think Agnew did something very similar, didn't he? Jonathan Agnew picked up Viv definitely, and a couple of others in a, in a in a quick burst to start his career in 1984, and then and it went in a similar direction to Selby, where mm. it, it you know it, it tailed off quite quickly, and he played about three or four tests as well. Yeah, it might have been four for Agnew from memory. Um, so, but I thought, given an AUD pledge, it's more likely to be Martin Love adjacent. Now, Martin Love has had a lot of love on the final word with nerd pledges. There have been, mm. I think, proportionate to the number of tests played. I reckon he might have had the highest number of nerd pledges um, <laughs> given that he played five test matches all up Marty Love but I thought it was interesting because we did discuss him recently he came up in relation to Philip Hughes so Martin Love did have the record for the youngest player to make a century in a Sheffield Shield final until Philip Hughes broke that record and, and Marty Love was 21 I think he just turned 21 when he made that 100 in the Shield final an important one, it was the 94-5 final. It was a, the big breakthrough year for Queensland mm-hmm. because they'd never won a Sheffield Shield and they'd had sort of Alan Border as Australian Test captain for, you know, 10-plus years at that point and they still hadn't been able to win a Shield and they were pissed about it and they finally got there. You know, Border finished up in Test cricket and went back and played one last season for Queensland and they got that breakthrough and, and Martin Love was a part of that. Um, it wasn't his first Shield final because he actually debuted in a Shield final when he was 18 years old um, a couple of seasons earlier, which is... Fairly extraordinary as a, a bold pick to, to get him in there. But, you know, he was such a, a sort of classical player that he had that poise. He looked so good that they thought even at that age he could 
make the grade. Extraordinary career, all up four centuries in Sheffield Shield finals. So after they got the breakthrough one, he played in a lot of Shield finals after that. I posted a photo the other week of the the, the trophy list at the Gabba. As you go downstairs into the nets, they have all of the, um, the trophies that various Queensland Bulls teams have won written on the underside of the, the staircase in that stairwell. And there are about 20 different sponsor name variants because, you know, they didn't just win the 50-over <laughs> cup. They won three McDonald's <laughs> cups and two ING cups and a Ford Ranger cup and whatever else it was, um, the sponsor. And they won some Pura cups as well as some Sheffield Shield finals when Mr Sheffield got uh, the arse for a few years in favour of the dairy company with that sponsorship arrangement in the early 2000s. But, yeah, four hundreds in Shield finals, uh, 11,224 runs just for Queensland, Martin Love made. Uh, extraordinary career. Another... Four and a half thousand just about for Durham and Northants in county cricket. So all up, just shy of 17,000 first-class runs, and that includes the five tests that he got to play with his, uh, his one-ton rodeo up in the North End, which we were talking about earlier. So back when they were playing North End cricket previously, it was the, the Bangladesh series, I fancy, in Cairns and Townsville, where Martin Love had a, another big partnership with Steve Waugh. Steve Waugh made 150 in that game and became the first player to have made 150-plus against all current test-playing nations. That was a record that I remember at the time, but Martin Love got his even 100 not out, but he only got those five test matches as a, a fill-in player here and there in that sort of uh, early 2000s era. But uh, a wonderful first-class career and uh, somebody who could have played a lot more test cricket. He ended up with a test batting average of 46.6. Yeah, remarkable that he, that he finishes with a test batting average that healthy. He's, that was his last test innings, that unbeaten century. So, you know, to get binned off after that, it, again, it, and no one sort of thought twice about it. It was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. We will, we will select a better mm. player than Martin Love now. And he only averaged 46.6. Mm-hmm. He must be shit. Yeah. Fuck him off. You know, that, that, that says a lot about, you know, uh, how, how the game was played, how the selection was done in that ridiculous era. The same thing happened to Cat, didn't it, after yep. making that 100 at Sydney to finally sort of, I say finally, he'd played like five or six test matches, but mm. to get 100 at his home ground and didn't play the next test because that's when they chose to, to bring Andrew Simons in in Sri Lanka. Too old. But, yeah. they, they Amy Satterthwaited Kadich at that point. They were like, nah, old fella, get him out of here. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what happened to him at the end, wasn't it, with Kadich? He was uh, he was retired off and pensioned off too soon. And, yeah, you can you can see a world where Martin Love plays 100 test matches mm-hmm. if he comes around... 10 years earlier or 10 years later, but a, a most rewarding domestic career with Queensland, as you say. Thank you, Oli Chahorn, and thank you to everybody who contributes to the Patreon page uh, week in, week out, month in, month out, patreon.com forward slash the final word. I've said this a couple of times recently, and I, I've been inundated with messages from our existing patrons. If you want to be on Discord with us, all you need to do is send me a message on Patreon, and I will send you the link. That's quite straightforward. So drop me a DM there, and I'll, and I'll direct you to the nicest corner of the internet. Anyone who uh, finds their way there is grateful for the experience they get. There are catch-ups taking place throughout the English summer, the international English summer that starts this week at various different test grounds, and we've already had uh, one in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago at the Comedy Festival, and that'll continue apace, and yeah, no better time to to join this lovely community, patreon.com forward slash the final word, and by submitting your pledge, we will talk about you on Storytime, which will be back again this Saturday. As it always is, uh, every weekend, except occasionally the weekends when it isn't. All right, let's take a break on the final word. And when we return, it'll be Sophie Eccleston. 
Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Crickonomics. Uh, it's a book that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed the authors and then following that we decided to do a bit of promo for it because we enjoyed the read so much and we thought, well, maybe you'll enjoy the read as well. If you want to get a different perspective on cricket, this is a book written by Tim Wigmore, a very good, astute cricket journalist with a keen eye for detail. And then he has teamed up with Stefan Szymanski, who's a renowned economist. So Stefan wrote the book Sockonomics, uh, all about the finances and uh, economic intricacies of football, association football, the round ball game, uh, and then decided to move on to cricket and get some help from Wiggy because he knows more about cricket than most people will ever be able to forget. So they've, they've looked at just about everything, the impact of demographics in India on the rise of cricket there, the way that cricket turned into a game of internationals ahead of club cricket and how that might change in future, how women's cricket might develop from here, the impact of COVID-19. They've taken sort of case studies. Basically, each chapter is a different idea, a different concept. Why do all of England's good batters come from private schools and they're bowlers don't. What are the class dynamics at play in cricket? There are so many thorny questions that they've gone into with a whole lot of data analysis and a whole lot of research as well. Yeah, it's like they've said, what are our 25 best ideas for 25 brilliant yeah. essays? And they've brought them all together under the one header, Cricketomics. Um, I like to think that they're, because, you know, it's pretty clear they've, they've written the chapters on their own and then consulted with each other and, you know, that collaborative process. I, I like to think they've, they've written it like Elton John and the other guy that Elton John writes the songs with who no one knows the name of. Um, in, uh, Who is Elton like John in this service. scenario? You know, is, is, <laughs> did Stefan give you more of an Elton vibe or, or Tim? Who's yeah. leading? Who's got the glasses on? Yeah, hold me closer, Timmy Wigmore. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, look, it's, it's doing really well, this book, so uh, I recommend jumping on Amazon and buying it now. And if you're in Australia, it'll be on shelves in a couple of months, so you can do the pre-order through Amazon, which gives you a pretty good deal. So that's the way to get hold of it. And yeah, as you say, it's like... They've touched on every base here, even down to like the Barmy Army's importance to the economics of Test cricket. And, mm-hmm. Like we were talked about New Zealand a little while ago about the about their women's structure being not quite up, not quite up to it. To be blunt, well, their men's system is, and how did they get a men's team mm-hmm. to the top of all three formats? Which seems absurd when you compare their population to their competitors and, and all the rest of it. Why are they excuse the cliche punch so far above their weight? It makes sense when you read about why and, mm. and how they got their shit together off the field. So there's, there is loads to dig through. Um, you get to read about some greats of the game like Sanat Jaisiri and Adam Gilchrist and how they transformed test cricket more than T20, which is kind of counterintuitive. So, yeah, there are these, these ideas, there's these, these truisms that we, that we just sort of repeat over and over again. They stress test those and it's a most worthwhile process. The book's called Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. It's published by Bloomsbury Sport. I strongly recommend you jump on Amazon and get yourself a copy and all of that will be in the show notes. Final word with Adam Collins and with me today I have England superstar, the number one ranked bowler in the world, Sophie Eccleston. Hello. Hello. Uh, nice to see you. How life has changed since watching your international debut as a, what was it, 16 year old at Bristol six years ago and the life you lead these days, uh, roaming around the world doing what you do. Where actually are you at the moment? Uh, yeah, no, I'm in India at the minute with the IPL, so it's quite, we're in Pune, so got a few games left now, so hopefully get, make, make it for the final. We need a result to go our way tomorrow, so hopefully. So you've been to India probably, what, 
three or four times now with cricket, something like that. Like, what's the? How do you find being uh, sort of a country that's very different to the UK, and how your games evolved in in the different trips you've made to India? Yeah, I think when I first came to India, I got very homesick because uh, obviously it's so different to being in the UK and being at home. But I think over the last few years, I've realised how much they love cricket here and how mad they are for cricket and what an experience it is to be here playing cricket. So, yeah, obviously it's so different to England. Like The conditions are so different. Obviously, I can bowl a bit slower. The wickets are turning a bit more. But since the IPL this time, the wickets have been so good in Pune. And yeah, they've been absolute roads like the M6. So uh, it's been a bit different. <laughs> Time round. <laughs> is your sense just kind of being there and amongst it all that we're getting closer to a proper women's IPL? And that's not to discredit what you're in this week, but like it's obviously not a proper tournament, right? It's a few games in a final. Do you think that is your internal sort of radar sensing that we're, we're pretty close there? Or, or do you think it'll be kind of more like this year to year? I've heard a lot of chat around the women's IPL next year, but obviously everything's just rumours and everything's just all... Like up in the air at the minute so, but there's been a lot of chat about it so hopefully it will happen next year and hopefully it'll be a great tournament I was thinking that you've had an incredible few months of travel now obviously it was difficult to get into Australia for the Ashes owing to the, the safe living requirements and we might come to that in a bit more depth then being in Australia during a COVID outbreak around the country, going straight to a World Cup, more hotel quarantine to get into New Zealand, a full World Cup, you're home for about five minutes, then you're off to Dubai for fair break. Now you're in India, then you come back home and then the season starts anew. I mean, you'll be home at the start of June just when your season's starting to ramp up and a whole host of international commitments you'll have in addition to the 100 and the Rachel Hayho Flint and the Charlotte Edwards Cup. I mean, again, using your arrival point as a reference point back in 2016, could you have possibly imagined just how much cricket you'd be playing as a 23-year-old are you now, whatever it is, compared to when you first made your debut all those years ago at Bristol? Yeah, I think it's mad that when I look back when I was 16 and make my day for England, I think I was just, I was still at a point where I was playing cricket for a bit of fun, like I just mm. enjoyed it, I was quite good at it, so I wasn't really, I was just there because I was quite good at cricket and playing for England was something I enjoyed doing and now it's just massive, it's so much like more, it's, it's like I'm doing I'm doing like what I love to do for my job and yeah, travelling the world, I've only, I think I've only been home like three weeks this year and now we're going right. to June when I get home, so I think it's mad, but obviously I'm loving it and I, love, I just love playing cricket away from home. Yeah, look, and I know you love it, but it is tough not being home a lot. We hear men talk about it a lot when they're on the circuit month after month that it starts to wear them down a little bit. But you made the choice to go to Dubai for two weeks and play in Fairbreak, and it was a wonderful thing. I love being there. I know you love there being, being there as well, but did that form part of your decision-making process that, gee, that's another two and a half weeks out of my own bed? Yeah, I think it's quite mad. I think it's just making sure that like family come out. I think obviously my Craig, my partner, came to Dubai for a weekend, which was really nice. Yep. And yeah, I think it's just like I think I've, I've realised it's just a short career, and I need to get these opportunities in whilst I can. And yeah, in ten years' time, I probably won't have these opportunities to do it again. So I think it's cramming them all in now whilst I can. How did you find Fairbreak? The broader experience of being part of like I guess it's like a movement, isn't it, with the associate players there all the fun of the fair when we were there like the other activities that were going on like what did you make of those two weeks in Dubai I absolutely loved it I think it was such a great concept like meeting everyone the first I was like oh my gosh I don't know anyone here apart from my (laughs) dunces on the team but after a couple of days everyone's got to know each other and yeah everyone just loved training and playing cricket I think it was so nice to see people from different countries I know that I've got close to a girl called Dave and she was from Singapore and learning about her life back home and what she does she has a, she has an office job like car sales and yeah I think it's mad just getting to know different people and yeah it was, it was an amazing tournament I'd definitely go again yeah it, it is interesting isn't it that a lot of the players you would have been in the dressing room with have the types of careers that you would have had if you were 10 years older. That is to say, you probably would have had another job. You wouldn't have been a professional cricketer, maybe 15 years ago in an England context. But I'm sure you know what I mean, that 
the experience you're having and the experience they're having is a very different one, but it's not that far divorced from players that you're even in a dressing room now with like say Catherine Brunt who was very much in the amateur era before the contracts came in in 2014 yeah I think it's mad where it's come from now I think I was the first person to leave straight from school to get a contract so I think I was quite lucky in that sense that everyone had to get a job or like my mates were going off to uni and they were getting jobs or getting apprenticeships and <laughs> I was like well what are you doing so and I was just like I've got, I've got a job playing cricket and that's what I'm going to do now for hopefully a few years and yeah I think it's just quite mad looking back now and obviously Catherine's here when they were younger they just they didn't get paid to play cricket and choose paid because you loved it and yeah things have evolved so much and it's just great to obviously say that cricket's my job now and speaking of just the cricket side of things for a moment you led the fair break tournament for wickets which is probably expected given where you sit in in the world rankings at the moment and the comparative difference between you and some of the associate players it was fairly obvious that you would do well with the ball but with the bat that's not something that's brand new to you to be a finisher in white ball cricket, but you did play very well coming in at number six or number seven at the very end of a T20. Is that something you've been working on specifically to try and get elevated up the England list and, and hopefully play that role in, in T20 international cricket as well? Yeah, I think now that like, you should get into the England team as if you were good at one thing, but now the cricket like it's just moving on so much to game that you need to be good at two aspects of the game and not just one. So I think being like working my batting and getting better my batting is a massive thing for me and I hopefully showed that throughout the ashes that I'm there. I want when Catherine retires, I want to take her spot number seven. So right. that's definitely an aim for me. Yeah, I think that's that's yeah, it's like a worthwhile aim, isn't it? Sort of seeing the long term or medium term, I suppose, with, with Catherine's longevity that there might be a role for you there. And look, England's batting in Australia wasn't crash hot either. Let's let's call it for what it was. Like you had a, a tough time of it, even at the start of the World Cup. So there is room for you to grow into that sort of seven, eight role, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I think people when they say that so, like circle bat, everyone just has a laugh about it, so I like, give it a whack at the end. But I definitely want to be taken seriously for batting in the next couple of years and hopefully get myself up the order. Speaking of Australia, like how tough was that having to over Christmas and New Year go through safe living, which meant seeing not many of your family and friends or a very limited number of them, then getting to Australia and all the challenges of being there through the Omicron variant wiping through into hotel quarantine in New Zealand. Like, Give us a sense as a player how difficult it is being locked away and then playing cricket, then locked away, then playing cricket. We've heard a lot of men talk about it, but as a woman in the game, uh, how did you experience that? Yeah, I, was, uh, I can't really put it in, but it was very hard over Christmas. I think there was a time where I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I think I said to Craig and I was just like, you can, I'll move out. I'll have to move into an Airbnb so you can have a Christmas because whatever rules I was living under, if Craig was living with me too, he would have to do that as well. So I think when it was on Christmas Day and getting like, your family, your mum and dad to do lateral flows to get into their house, have Christmas like dinner together, I think that's just absolutely like, absurd really. We'll look back in a few years' time and obviously family gatherings that none happen over Christmas obviously got cancelled because... I wasn't going to be there or I just didn't go and yeah I think obviously it wasn't just me that it was hard for I think obviously for Craig as well and my mum and dad and my mm. brother like obviously not being able to see them over Christmas and then flying out on the 7th of January and obviously being away for three months then it's, it's obviously not easy and yeah obviously then go straight to the World Cup and I'm in quarantine it's really not easy as a cricketer I think everyone says You've got the best job in the world, but it, it does come with some tough times. And yeah, that was definitely a tough time. Do you think that contributed to England's underperformance in Australia and, and the slow start in New Zealand during the World Cup that pretty much you guys were knackered? Yeah, I think it contributes. I think obviously it doesn't, it's not an ideal situation to come into, but I think we were, I think Heather put it right, we just want to make the bat up 
they were like, it was a bit of a shambles really coming into the Ashes, but I think we just needed to make the best of a bad situation. And I think we did all that we can to get prepared for the Ashes. And yeah, obviously it didn't pull off on the field for us, but I think we gave it our best effort to be in the best place possible. And with your bowling, you get to New Zealand and you have a really good World Cup. You lead the, the wicket-taking list by a mile. Do you sort of feel that now that when you're at the top of your mark, and without being arrogant about it, I'm not, I'm not trying to lead you in that direction, but just in your internal onboard cricket computer, you know, you've played a lot of cricket now. Do you feel like, no matter who you're bowling to, that if you do what you're able to do, that you probably have their measure at this stage of your career? Yeah, I think I, I obviously back myself a lot. I think being in a position that I've got a bowl, and I think Heather always brings one of the hard situations, which I love and I, I really appreciate. Like, she has a lot of faith in me, which is great. So obviously, coming on to bowl on the power play when you're facing, say, bowl at Healy and yeah. maybe Ash Garner for thoughts like that, I think it's obviously a really com- a competitive battle for me. And yeah, hopefully I come up, out on top. But yeah, it's obviously... Um, Hard work, but I love it. Have you had much of a chance to process what happened in the World Cup final? I know it was a fairly chastening experience as a bowler that day with with Australia kind of having the perfect day. Have you as a team kind of unpicked all of that and understand what it is and rationalised it? Or is it just getting on with the job and, and sort of not trying to dwell too much on a pretty bad day at the office? Well, we haven't spoke about it to us. I've obviously not really been there. Um, yeah. But yeah, obviously I think we sort of look back on the World Cup when we all talk about it and say, I mean, Dunks have spoke out about it a little bit and it's just, obviously Healy battled unbelievable that day and she had obviously got 170 in the World Cup final, which is ridiculous. And yeah, obviously it was a very good batting wicket. And I think it, it, we came really close to Elsie that bad unbelievably that way, that day as well. And if someone mm. could have batted with her, then we'd have been really close that day. So I think it's the smallest of margins, but yeah, obviously it was a, 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 not a great day for me as a bowler. I remember at the end of last summer, I reckon it was down at Canterbury at the very end when I think I might have spoken to you for a couple of minutes after that game. And there was a sense with you and your teammates, you actually were quite tired. Like it's the first summer where you'd played loads of international cricket, including a test match against India, where you bowled a lot of overs yourself. You had a second multi-format series with New Zealand, albeit without a test at the end. The 100 for the first time on television, a lot of cricket in a condensed space. The Charlotte Edwards Cup for the first time, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint, the proper iteration of that for the first time after a, a truncated season in 2020. I mean, you kind of got to the end of the season in similar shape to, I guess, what men do when you get to September, October, and you're like, geez, I really need a break. That might have been the first time you, you had that experience, but now you probably will every year of your career. It, it's a bit of a shift, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely massive. I think you reeling them off there. I mean, like, it's just so much cricket going on now. And yeah, I think I was pretty tired towards the end of summer. Obviously, we'd been in bubbles all summer. And mentally, I found that very tough. And I know it doesn't come out in the media, but a lot of the girls did find that really tough, like COVID and like, just being in bubbles, not allowed to see family. Or I didn't see Craig for two or three months. Like, yeah, yeah. Just work and he has to safely for seven days before he can come into the bubble last year and to see him. So it was obviously absolutely ridiculous. And Hopefully this summer's going to be a lot different. But yeah, obviously there's so much cricket and we obviously love playing cricket. And yeah, it'll definitely come to the end of the summer this year and we can definitely get a break at some point. Did you guys get engaged in the middle of all that as well at some point? Did I, did I read that somewhere? Got engaged in November, so... Right. I've only got engaged in November. Then we also had a month together. I had to safe live and I was off for three months, so... <laughs> I mean, he's committed to me. That's his fault. So that's what I have to deal with from now on. <laughs> Just going back to the 100, which is kind of the centrepiece of the domestic season uh, for England's women last year. What was it like being part of that? I mean, I know that you've played in front of big crowds before. You, you personally have been on television a lot since the start of your career, but it felt like this was a, a pretty significant stepping stone uh, on the path for a lot of domestic cricketers who haven't had that experience. Yeah, it was an absolutely ridiculous tournament. I think it was an amazing 
tournament. I mean, my favourite format's T20, so obviously to come into the 100, I absolutely loved it. I think the, the crowds that the women got and that, the, how much publicity it got was absolutely incredible. And long may it continue this year, and I'm so excited for it this year. I think it's going to be an amazing tournament again, and hopefully it lives up to expectations again. Interesting that you say that T20 is your favourite format, despite the fact that one-day cricket is probably where you've got your best record, and you've bowled some wonderful spells at, at test level as well, thinking back to the way you are able to contribute to bowling India out the first time at Bristol last summer. Do you sort of relish the chance to play more test cricket? That seems to be the consensus from your senior teammates and from the Australian team, for example, that they just want to have more opportunities to play red ball cricket is that something you share as a younger player in the dressing room yeah absolutely I absolutely love playing test cricket I think the, the Ashes test match is something you live for if you're playing an Ashes test match I think it's just one of the best four days ever like anything can happen and obviously we've got a test match this summer against South Africa which is amazing and yeah I definitely want to play more of it I think it's a great format for the women's game and long like I just hope there's more test matches in the future do you think inside your dressing room there's like I know it's hard because the schedule that we've been talking about is quite packed, but there's like a movement to see some domestic red ball cricket, even if it were two-day games, for example, just to give yourselves more of an opportunity to experience what it is to have to play more defensively or, or grit out a session or, or something like that. Like, do you talk about that with your teammates? I haven't actually spoken much about it, but the people talking about it now, I think it would be great for the domestic game. I think if we're going to start playing more international test match cricket and we need some domestic cricket that's playing red ball to bring through the test players through and stuff like that. So I think it would be amazing to see some domestic red ball stuff. It would be really interesting to see what would happen. And you have got a test match, as you say, against South Africa in the middle of the summer. It's in end of June from memory or thereabouts. Yeah, um, yeah. They've got a pretty high ceiling, don't they, South Africa? I mean, they had an excellent World Cup until they ran into you lot in the semi-final. It doesn't feel like they're far away from bridging the gap to you and Australia. I mean, obviously you want to beat every team you play every time, but it's got to be good for the global women's game that South Africa, India, who you play again this summer, on their day, the West Indies, occasionally New Zealand, are all there and thereabouts. It, it's a bit different to when you started. Yeah, I think when I first saw it, it was kind of like those three, two or three teams that it would be a good competition against. And now everyone's capable of beating each other. I think it's like it's, it's the, the games come on so much. And yeah, hopefully long may continue that people keep improving and more money comes into the women's game. And obviously South Africa, whenever they've got a great team of great players, so it'll be a very interesting series. Interesting that your summer this year will conclude at Lords in a one-day international against India. I know I've been a bit of a pest on social media about this with you having never played there before. Get this, I'm playing a game on the main pitch at Lords in a couple of weeks. So I'll play a game at Lords before you do, which is the most preposterous uh, little factoid I can think of. And last year when, I think, where were we? we were at Worcester when your brother was playing at Lords. I think it was yeah. Worcester. Anyway, whatever it was. Uh, so, I mean, I know that nothing wrong with the Village Cup and, and credit to his village for making it through to the final. And it's a great competition. No dramas there. But there must be a sense of, not relief, but like, okay, at last you'll, you'll tick that box and, and walk through the long room and play a game on that ground yourself. Yeah, honestly, I can't tell how many jokes my brother makes about it. Every time we talk about cricket, he's always mentioning it. So he's just—I think there was a joke the other day that was—he was saying about like in the changing room, you can sit in my seat. So, so I think it's like just making jokes that he's obviously played at Laws before me. So yeah, hopefully when it when I come along to play at Laws, he can stop mentioning it then. But yeah, I'm absolutely buzzing. He played at Laws and he he absolutely loved it. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to play there myself. Do I recall correctly that your lovely parents went to watch him play a village game that day instead of watching you play an international? Is that how it played out? 
Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, if there wasn't any COVID, I was hoping, obviously, if we were in a bubble, so, but I was hoping to go down after the game and obviously try and catch the end of it, but obviously that couldn't have happened. But yeah, mum and dad chose to go and watch him, and rightly so, he was playing at Lords, so yeah, fair play to mum and dad for going to watch him. Well, Sophie, uh, thanks for taking some time to have a chat uh, on the podcast, and uh, yeah, you've, you've had a huge 12 months, a huge five years, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing what's possible for you in, in 2022. Thanks, Adam. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thank you to Sophie Eccleston, who I said off the top. She was in great, Nick. I've interviewed Sophie many, many, many times across the five years she's been playing for England. And uh, she's, uh, yeah, always someone who who, who gives plenty and, and tells you how she sees it. But, yeah, I love the idea that, as she pointed out, like she was kind of the first cricketer who got to 18, got a professional contract, and that was that. Like, all of her predecessors got to, mm. you know, they were in their 20s when they were getting these deals. And she's, you know, she is an interesting case study because she has actually been professional from the time that she could be. She's, she's the new generation. Uh, she's the future and the present. And she's, you know, like we were talking about her playing in so many finals. You know, she will win England global titles in the future, yeah, I reckon, on, yeah. just on the basis of having played so much high-intensity cricket and, and really important crunch games so early in her career. Uh, she'll be able to handle it better than just about any uh, as the years go by. Great to catch up with uh, some of the best cricketers in the world, as we often try and do on The Final Word. If you like what we do, patreon.com forward slash The Final Word. Get your nerd pledge in and become part of the fun on Discord and on the weekly show. That's called Storytime. That'll be out on Saturday. We're on the Bad Producer Productions label. Uh, thank you to Dave Collins, who is our industrious editor. He's always there for us. He holds our hand through this process of podcasting. He makes us sound a lot better than we are. You would never want to hear the raw files that we give to him each week. Believe me on that one. Uh, Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards, who run the label as well. We're forever in your debt. And that's it. This has been The Final Word, Season 12, Episode 9. And we'll be back not only on the weekend, but before that with our first daily et for the England men against New Zealand at Lords. Until then, ta-da. See ya. I had to go about it.